If you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 51. The text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page. Psalm 51. Um, so, I've been looking forward to this psalm probably more than any other psalm going through our series in the psalms. Um, we're probably going to slow down and take it in two weeks. In fact, I know that for sure at this point because my sermon notes don't cover the whole thing. So we're going to take uh, pretty much just the first half this week and then um, and the second next week. Uh, I've been looking forward to it because it's, uh, it's really a great psalm for my growth, for my personal growth in Christ. I need to spend more time in this psalm. I need to spend more time praying through it because the nature of our relationship with God is wonderfully clear right here. Uh, It's a psalm about sin, and it's a psalm about salvation. That's basic, fundamental Christian stuff. Um, It's a confession of sin. We've used it this morning for our confession of sin. And it's a prayer for forgiveness, and it's a prayer for restoration. Talk more about the forgiveness part of it this week and the restoration part next week. But uh, contrary to our instincts, a confession of sin like this, and a prayer for forgiveness like this, and a prayer for restoration, like we find in Psalm 51, it isn't something that's only relevant to new converts when you first become a Christian. It isn't even something that's best understood by new converts as you first become a Christian. Growing as a Christian doesn't mean that you need to confess your sin less and less, so you get away from using a psalm like this. Growing as a Christian means learning more and more about your absolute dependence on Jesus Christ, on the grace of God that's found in Him, His mercy, His love, His forgiveness. And that involves a growing awareness of your sin, a growing awareness of what your sin really is, what it really means. So you become able to use this psalm better and better as you mature in your relationship with God throughout this life. This psalm and others like it, other penitential psalms as they're called. Uh, Barbara Duguid has a great book that uh, some of us are reading together. It's called Extravagant Grace. I think everybody should read it. Um, And she says in this book, the mature Christian is much stronger than he was before because he has a deeper and more constant sense of his own weakness, his own sin. He's stronger in Christ and not in himself. He knows his own heart well and has also come to see the love of his Savior in deeper and richer ways. And that's exactly what the psalm is meant to help us with, to give us a truer sense of our sin, um, and then therefore uh, a richer, deeper sense of the love of Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would open your word to us by your spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts to be receptive to this word. It's a difficult word for some of us, for all of us. We pray that you'd make us more and more the kind of people who can read it and pray it and use it in our relationship with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. To the choir master. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy 
on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the setting of this psalm, as it says in the title there, setting David wants us to recall with this psalm, is, is when Nathan the prophet was sent by God to confront him in the Lord's name, on the Lord's behalf, with the Lord's word, to confront David about the whole mess with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And you find that in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I think you should probably go home and read those this week. Um, probably should have had you read them this last week, but read them this week because we'll talk about it again next week. Um, David, he was the beloved king of Israel. I mean, throughout the whole history of Israel, he's been the beloved king of Israel. We've always looked back on David as it's the golden age with David. He's the beloved king. And he did terrible things. Terrible things that maybe they've been made into movies, but if they were made into movies, you wouldn't let your kid watch that movie. He did terrible things, but God, in his mercy, didn't let him get away with it. It's not because he was vengeful. In his mercy, he didn't let David get away with the terrible things that he'd done. It was probably the worst time in David's life whole series of, of things that happened in those chapters. He should have been faithful to his royal calling as the king of Israel. He should have led his army into battle against their enemies. His army was out there without him. He should have been faithful to his royal calling and served the people like a good king. He should have been faithful to his own marital vows. He should have been faithful to his friend Uriah. He knows Uriah. He's his friend. He's one of his mighty men. He's one of his 37 best and most loyal warriors. 
should have been faithful in that relationship. He should have been faithful to every person in his life and every person in his whole kingdom. But instead, he used his power to serve himself, to fulfill his own lust, to bend others to his will, and to escape all the consequences of his treachery as having betrayed everybody in his life and in his kingdom. He committed adultery, and he used his power as king to murder, to cover that up, and he even swept others into his crimes as accomplices. They did his dirty work on his behalf. And I don't think David even allowed himself to know the full magnitude of what he had done. Not at first. I think that's obvious. Uh, He compartmentalized his great evil, this magnificent evil, compartmentalized it and shut it out of his mind. When Nathan the prophet was sent by the Lord to confront him, and if you know the story, Nathan tells this story about, it's basically about a rich man who's got everything, who destroys this poor man who has nothing. At first, David didn't get the hint. He didn't recognize himself in the story. He was in such deep denial that he even reacted with righteous indignation. He said, that rich man ought to die. (laughs) Until Nathan told him, point blank, David, that's you. Then the word of the Lord broke through all of his defenses, all of his denials, all of his deceptions. Maybe good King David preferred to think better of himself than all that. Probably. But now, according to the scriptures, and even according to his own admission, he deserved death a couple times over. And knowing this about himself, knowing this was a mercy. Knowing this was a mercy, God mercifully set him free to know his own sin and to be able to confess it and to turn to God for forgiveness. The Lord sent Nathan to David, not to heap condemnation on David. Though certainly at moments in that conversation, it felt like condemnation. That wasn't the point. The Lord sent Nathan to David to bring him to a a place of greater self-awareness, a place of greater contrition, a place of real confession. That's where he was brought. So so David says in this psalm, in verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I can't stop thinking about this. I can no longer escape the reality of what I've done. Denial won't work. Distraction won't work. Self-deception won't work. Deceiving others won't work. I can't escape the reality of what I've done. And here's the deepest reality that David can't escape anymore, that he writes about in this psalm for our good. Here's the deepest reality of what David has done. Verse 4, against you. You only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment? This is, the most, this is one of the most important things God can teach us. One of the most important things God teaches us. <clears throat> it barely makes any sense to us the first time we consider it. If you're a brand new Christian, you just converted to Christianity... You're just learning how to confess your sins to God. You use a psalm like this. You don't know what this means. What does that mean? It barely makes any sense to us that, that we would say, against you, you only have I sinned. But you become more and more convinced of it. 
as you grow and mature in your faith, that against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David, this doesn't make any sense. He abdicated his kingly responsibilities to the whole nation. He betrayed his own wives, plural. I mean, that, that whole thing is like for another discussion that he had multiple wives that he betrayed. But he betrayed his household, his family, his marital vows. He violated Bathsheba. I mean, it was probably a little bit of pressure that was exerted on her because of the king here. Violated Bathsheba, made her a widow by killing a better man than himself. How could David possibly say, which, with, with such emphatic certainty, against you, God, you only, have I sinned? Is he a complete sociopath? Is he totally insensitive to the ways that he's betrayed and destroyed everybody in his life and his kingdom? Listen, uh, you need to listen to this. This is one of the most important things you could know about yourself and about your sin is that against God and God only have you sinned and done what is evil in your sight, in, in his sight. If sin isn't essentially first and foremost something about your relationship with God, then it's nothing at all. Absolutely nothing. Meaningless. Not evil. Not sin. Not morally wrong. If it doesn't have to do with your relationship with God, essentially, first and foremost, sin is nothing at all. The only reason sin is sin is because of God. Sin isn't sin because it hurts other people. Sin isn't sin because it's self-destructive and makes you feel like you're a bad person It's guilty. Sin is sin because it's against God. So the atheist nihilists are absolutely right. Apart from the reality of God, if he's not real, if he hasn't spoken, if we don't have a relationship with God, if he doesn't exist, apart from his reality, anything goes. It's dog-eat-dog, dog, it's survival of the fittest, it's everybody pursue your own interests at the expense of others, why wouldn't you? doesn't matter, there's no anchor for any kind of morality at all. If not for God, for his reality, and for David's relationship to God, it wouldn't matter at all what David did to anybody in his life and kingdom. It wouldn't matter. The main thing wrong with what David did, the main thing wrong with all the terrible things that he did that hurt other people, the thing at the very heart of all the wrong that David did was sin against God. That's what was wrong. He sinned against God. That's how all the scriptures understand sin. Every time we sin, uh, Genesis 39, Joseph is being tempted to uh, betray his master and sleep with his master's wife. And he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Proverbs 14 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. That's what you're doing when you oppress a poor man. You're insulting his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors his maker. When Jesus forgave that paralytic, as Nathan read about in Mark 2 in our gospel reading, when he forgave that paralytic, his enemies were right. How can he say this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because sins are against God alone. 
It's a violation of your relationship with God. That's what sin is. Even when it involves other people. That's what sin is. The way you relate to other people is ultimately, essentially, first and foremost, the working out of your relationship to God. It's your response to who God is, to his reality, and his revelation, and your relationship with him. So when you sin against God, it has real effects on other people, absolutely. But the deepest, truest reality is that it's sin against God. It's a violation of your relationship with him. And God even says that over and over again to David through the mouth of Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan says to David, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You've despised me. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So everything David had done with regard to Bathsheba, everything David had done with regard to Uriah the Hittite, was a violation of his relationship with the God who had made him and made him who he was and given him everything he had. So Tim Keller says, every sin is cosmic treason. It is overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. Every sin. Every sin. And that's true even if you don't realize that that's what you're doing. Cosmic treason. Even if you don't realize it. Hardly anyone consciously thinks when they're lusting, God doesn't satisfy me, so I'm going to fulfill my own pleasures here and now. Hardly anyone thinks when they're hating someone, I hate God, I can't stand his providence, and I'm going to take it out on these people. But God says that's exactly what we're doing every time we sin, any sin at all, whether we know it or not. Even if you haven't explicitly thought of God at all in that process. I remember a sermon uh, by John Piper about this years and years ago, super influential to me, understanding this. It etched itself in my memory, this part of it. He imagined pushback from David on this point when the Lord is confronting him through Nathan, saying, you sinned against me. And he imagined this pushback from David. How did I sin against you? I was just hot for her. How did I despise you? I wasn't even thinking about you. Don't you see? Don't you see? You're meant to live your entire life, every moment, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You're meant to live by every single word that comes from the mouth of God. The ten words, for example, the ten commandments. When God says, do not murder. When God says, do not commit adultery. Everything God says. If you do those things, even if you do them without thinking about God, maybe even especially 
when you do them without giving a single thought to God. You're far from loving Him with your whole being. You're rejecting Him and His Word. And that's the only reason why those things are evil at all. It's only because of God's reality, His revelation to us, His relationship with us, that we can say that anything is evil, that anything is wrong, that anything is sin. That's what sin is. Violation of our relationship with Him. And that means that aspects of our human relationships and consequences in our human relationships, they aren't the main thing that's wrong with the world. They're not the main thing that's wrong with you. They're not the main thing that's wrong with me. The effects that these sins have on other people, that's not what's wrong with the world. The way our racial injustices affect others, the way our sexism affects others, the way child abuse or sexual scandals or corruptions affect others in this world, that's not the main thing wrong with the world or me or you. The main thing wrong with the world, with you and with me, is our relationship with God. That's the main thing wrong. And you you haven't truly understood sin, either your own sin or the sin of other people and their relationship with God, unless you've understood sin as being against God alone. When you yell at your kids, you're sinning against God alone. When you complain about the circumstances of your life, you're sinning against God alone. When you hit your brother or your sister, you're sinning against God alone. From the full-fledged adultery and murder that God said not to commit that David did, all the way down to eating, taking one bite of a piece of fruit that God said not to eat. It's cosmic treason because of who it is that you're sinning against. Which means that you can never say, oh, this particular sin isn't a big deal. You can't say that about anything. Did you commit cosmic treason? Did you violate your relationship with God the Creator, the heart of all reality, the source of life and love, the giver of every perfect gift to you? Then it's a big deal, even if it was just picking a fruit and tasting it. Even if it was just not considering him as you went about your day. This is something we uh, generally can't stand to even know about ourselves. To even admit. You can't handle that truth about yourself. You don't like it. What I'm saying, my guess is you don't like it. Thinking about our sin on that level is overwhelmingly unmanageable. I can't fix that problem. I can't fix the problem of my sin against God. So we find excuses. We minimize it. We shift the blame. I was just tired and I lost my self-control, I guess. But he hit me first. The devil made me do it. I don't know what happened. That's just so out of character for me. Nope. David says, Behold, 
I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is who I am. All the way down. I sin against God because I'm a sinner. It's completely in character for me to do something like this. It goes all the way down to my nature, my identity, in and of myself. It's who I am. I can face this about myself better now than I did when I first believed. When you first believe, you can hardly face this reality at all. And I think this is what Martin Luther meant. It's a fairly famous saying of his that um, maybe it gets misinterpreted. I don't know. Uh, I think this is what he meant when he said, sin boldly. Right? You've heard that. Um, Love God and sin boldly. What does that mean? I think this is what he means. This is what he says in the passage where he says that. He says, be a sinner and let your sins be strong or sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Let let your sins be what they really are. And then, and only then, will Jesus be who he really is to you. He's the Lord who forgives cosmic treason. That's who he is. And in his great mercy, he sets you free to confess that that means you. That means you. In his mercy, I can only face this reality about myself because I know the even greater reality of the love of God in Christ. Ultimately, I'm going to be okay with whatever terrible truth I discover about myself that I'd rather not know. I'm going to be okay with it. I'm going to be okay with whatever terrible truth you discover about me, that you might learn about me. Because God knows all about it. He loves me anyway, and he gave his son's life for me to forgive me all my sins. So it's going to be all right if I know what those sins really mean. And his blameless judgment is all that matters. It's the only thing that matters. Convincing you of that... That reality, convincing you of that, is the whole point of convicting you of your sin at all. God doesn't bring you to a greater self-knowledge to make you despair. He isn't letting you be confronted with the reality of what your sin actually is so you would despair. He does it so that you'll be free in His love, His forgiving love. So when your sin appears this small like it does when you first believe. You don't know anything about your own sin. When it appears this small, you might have this big of appreciation for God's grace that he overcomes sin like that. But when your sin appears like an unscalable mountain, and you realize that Jesus died for that, even though you had no clue, then his grace will be everything to you. And that's why he does it. His grace will be everything to you. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That is, even after I've confessed the sin here, 
You're not done with me. You're teaching me. You teach me what to do about this problem that I have, this problem that I am. You teach me what to do about it on the most personal level, in the secret heart, in the inward being. God is teaching us to believe how great his love really is, that he would forgive sinners like us, sinners like me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's sort of code language in the Bible for your covenant promises, the way that you've revealed yourself to be this forgiving God, promising forgiveness. Have mercy on me according to that. According to your abundant mercy, that's sort of a picture of this visceral compassion, abundant mercy. According to that, blot out my transgressions. It's an audacious prayer. This is outrageous. For someone who's committed cosmic treason to pray this prayer, blot out my transgressions. When God judges sinners, as he does in the scriptures, and he he reveals is his right to do, he blots them out. That's what's happened over and over again in the scriptures to the point where David prays this prayer in the psalm. When God judges sinners, he blots them out. Genesis 6, with the great flood, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Genesis 7, he blotted out every living thing with the flood. Exodus 32, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. This is what God does with sinners. But the cosmic traitor, David, is presumptuous enough to ask, don't blot out me. Blot out my transgressions. The sinner asks God to forgive him. And the one who's asking God to forgive him is imposing. Imposing on God for something that he doesn't deserve. Don't deal with me according to what I deserve. Don't deal with me according to my sin. Deal with me according to your mercy. Do you have the right to ask God for that, for forgiveness, for cosmic treason? Only if God gives you the right. Only if he tells you to do it. Only if God says, you may impose upon me. Only if God says, you may appeal to my mercy and my grace and my love. Which is exactly what God has promised everywhere in the scriptures. He says in Isaiah, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And we see it in Colossians chapter 2. God forgave all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, by blotting out our transgressions that stood against us with their legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He took our transgressions, and he put them on his beloved son, Jesus, and he blotted him out, and he blotted out our transgressions instead of us. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, verse 2, and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. How can David be so bold as to pray for forgiveness? He's learned from God. He's learned from God's Word. He's learned from the Holy Scriptures how it is that God will forgive his sins, and actually how, how God forgives his sins, And he asks for it very specifically when he says, purge me with hyssop. 
Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is just a little plant, kind of shrubby. Just a little medicinal herb. It has antiseptic properties. It's in Ricola. But that's not why David prays this way. He isn't saying, mix up a little cleaning solution with hyssop and I'll drink it and it'll be purged. <laughs> right? He's not talking about the, the nature of the plant itself, hyssop. It's a pretty strange thing to bring up in a psalm, confessing your sin. Purge me with this one little bush. In the Bible, those with leprosy, those who've uh, touched dead bodies, basically those, uh, they're being pictured as spiritually unclean. They're being pictured as spiritually unclean and cleansing these people with leprosy, cleansing the people who have touched dead bodies. Cleansing is pictured by sacrificing an animal instead of you. Sacrificing an animal, dipping a sprig of hyssop in that dead animal's blood, and sprinkling it on the unclean person. That's how purging takes place in the Bible. David is asking for his sins to be purged by the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice instead of himself. Rather than his own blood being spilt for his sins, he's asking that God's justice would be satisfied by the shedding of another's blood for the forgiveness of his sins. And he only asked this because God taught him and gave him the right to ask it, invited him, said, go ahead, ask for forgiveness like that. Only God can forgive sins, and he has said he would do it through a substitutionary sacrifice, and that's exactly what happened when Jesus went to the cross willingly on our behalf as a substitute so that we wouldn't have to die, so we wouldn't be blotted out. His blood for ours, for the forgiveness of our sins, once and for all, sufficient for everybody. God dealt with the problem that we could never fix. It's the problem of our sin against him. He promised he was going to do it. He said, watch this. And he did it. And he saved us, and he reconciled us to himself through Christ on the cross. So let your sins be what they really are. So that you can know who Jesus really is to you. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this is a beautiful and difficult psalm. Um, these things that are so hard to look at, even in somebody else's life let alone our own lives, we pray that you would help us to know our sins, that um, they would be ever before us, but not to despair, that we would see that what we do in all of our lives and in all of our relationships and against other people and against ourselves, that all of it is against you and you only, that we have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We pray that you would Help us to see this and let sin be what it really is in our lives so that we would be able to see Jesus for who he really is. We pray that you would um, buoy us and strengthen us and free us to look at our own sins because we're so convinced of your mercy and your grace that's given to us at the cross. We thank you for the salvation that's found in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.